gather and to worship you. Uh, Lord, salvation, Lord, of calling on your name and receiving the forgiveness in your presence and in your peace. But Lord, I pray that we'd be challenged tonight to know that your ability to save is not limited by our, uh, our limitations, our prejudices, our choosing of who should or shouldn't hear that message, but that we would know that you are mighty to save anyone at any time who calls on your name. And so, Lord, as we go through the service tonight, as we go into the week ahead, that we would take that as a, as a great commission reminder that we can take the gospel to anyone and you can save them if they would repent of their sins and trust in you. And so, Father, thank you for being a God that is mighty to save. Thank you for being a God that is able to do things we can never understand for your glory and our blessing. And so, Father, again, would you bless this time as we're in your word, be with the kids as they're down the hallway for the musical practice, Lord. Just, uh, just bless tonight, Lord, again, that we would be just in tune with what you have for us. We'd hear from your word and be changed because of it. Father, we love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you. You can be seated, and we'll have the kids be dismissed down to musical practice. So as you guys find your seat, as they're dismissed, just a couple announcements quickly. Uh, Biggest announcement I want to make sure you guys know about is we do have our uh, men's prayer breakfast coming up. We have our uh, Forever Young Potluck coming up. Um, We also have... um, our Ladies' Day of, of Praise potluck. So lots of things going on. So please make sure you're up to date on the bullets in there as far as all the things that are going on, how they impact you. Um, one thing we really didn't talk about this morning is we do have on uh, November 11th, the student ministry has their rake and run. And then uh, also with the um, fruit baskets, that's going on as well. Uh, so November 15th, uh, those things are going to be due for the student ministry for their fruit baskets. So you can go to the sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center. Um, I don't know if there's much room on there right now. It seemed like it was pretty full. So, um, but if you did bring something, please remember, or sign up to bring something rather, please remember to bring that in by November 15th. Okay, so we can make sure that stuff gets turned in. Um, also want to let you know about the grief share uh, that's going on again on November 6th. Please get the word out about that. Let people know if that would be a blessing to them. Um, and then also Operation Christmas Child. You want to make sure you keep in mind about that. Um, love seeing all the shoeboxes uh, start to disappear. Now we're praying that they'll all come back full. So um, let's make sure we turn those in. If you did take one and be praying over those shoe boxes, pray that the Lord will continue to use them uh, that the gospel would go forth. And then also just a reminder, next Sunday, uh, you don't want to miss the uh, day of prayer for the persecuted church. So we're going to spend some time in our service uh, praying specifically for the persecuted church, what that means. We'll talk through all of that. Um, also, there will be uh, kind of a testimonial that you'll hear uh, from someone involved in the persecuted church. And so just a challenging service all around, encouraging to know the Lord is using all of this for his glory. But again, just pray for the service, pray the Lord will really use it, uh, plan on being here. And again, we pray that God will open our eyes to not only the persecution around us, but also the persecution that brothers and sisters are going through all over the world, which will help us to understand that maybe we are blessed in a de- to a degree that we're not having to go through some of those things. And the Lord is going to use us in that way in their community. So a lot of things going on. Pray that you can be a part of it. Um, I do want to open up with uh, just kind of getting the clipboards handed out and stuff and the handout for you guys. So we're going to be in a different passage this week. So if you have a handout from last time, we have a new one for you. Um, we may move into a different series moving forward. I'm not sure yet how we'll do that, but we've got some different things on kind of the back burner. So if I can get a couple volunteers that would like to hand out a handout and some clipboards. Anthony, John, Scott, awesome. 
Oh, there you go. So, and then uh, clipboards. We'll say Scott's got clipboards. Anthony's got pens. So if you need a clipboard, something hard to write on, we've got a handout for you guys. And then pens for you. So if you'd like to turn to the passage we're going to be in, it's John chapter 9. So you're getting a copy of John chapter 9. But if you'd like to turn there, you can. John chapter 9. So we'll get, get going here in just a moment. But in John chapter 9, this was actually uh, one of the readings from our men's Bible study this last week. Oh, Anthony, I think Mr. Proctor needs one. Uh, we read this in one of our readings for the week through our men's Bible study. And uh, one of my, like, honestly, one of my favorite stories involving Christ and his earthly ministry. Um, there's so much in here. Uh, some of it's kind of interesting, some of it's a little unique, and so we'll dive through this together. So, um, when we're reading through here, you're making those observations. Uh, again, you're going to be circling different things that stand out to you, names, places, situations, conversations. Um, if you can bracket the text together in a way that you see some natural breaks in the text and whatnot, definitely want to do that. So, we'll give you guys here in just a minute, about 10 minutes to look over the text, and then we'll be good to go. So again, you're looking for observations. You're making observations about who's talking to who, the situation, um, locations, all kinds of different things that stand out to you that way. So we'll give you guys, again, about 10 minutes to go ahead and walk through the text. So go ahead and, and start that, and then we'll come back and talk about the text in just a moment.
give you guys about another minute, finish up any thoughts, last minute thoughts, and then we'll dive into the text. to break apart the text there. Um, Just curious, uh, how many of you guys have read this passage more than just a few times? You've read it quite a few times, okay? Um, The Gospel of John obviously is a unique gospel. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, It is not one of the synoptic gospels, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke would qualify for. Uh, John is kind of a unique gospel in the sense of the type of way that it portrays the life of Christ. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read through there, it's a lot of Jesus went here and did this and here and did this and here and did this. And it's more of an account of those things. When you get into John, what's really unique about John's gospel, like if you've read through it, what's unique about John's gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in your opinion? What what have you noticed as one of the bigger differences between John's gospel and Matthew, Mark, and Luke? John's gospel is wordier. Okay. Okay. Very specific in detail when he describes things. John actually writes more on the crucifixion than the other gospels do. He gives more detail to the crucifixion and what takes place during that process than the other gospels do. What else is unique about John's gospel compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't actually identify himself as the author of the gospel. Uh, he just says either the beloved or the one that Jesus loved, right? Which again, when I first heard that early on in coming to Christ, I thought, man, that almost sounds a little arrogant. Like I'm the one that Jesus loved. But that's not, when you read the, the gospel of John and you read his epistles, uh, you know that's not really what he's saying. I think it's more of a shocking I'm the one that Jesus loved? Like, how could Jesus love me? And so again, he's only identifying himself in the love of Christ. He's not definitively saying, I'm awesome, I'm this, I'm that. He's saying, no, no, I'm merely just one that Jesus loved, and that's enough for me. So again, kind of unique there. What else is unique about the Gospel of John? It kind of ties in a little bit with what David said about some of the details, or the amount of detail, let me say it that way. Yes. So unpack that a little bit. What do you, what do you mean when you say relational? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Much more detail to what's going on in those people's lives. I love that. Yeah. More relational. There's actually really two quite famous conversations right? In the gospel of John. One of the more famous gospel of John conversations would be the gospel or the conversation with Nicodemus, 
which we get the most famous verse, John 3.16, right? That happened in the conversation. What about John chapter 4? Who's that a conversation with? Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? So that whole chapter, for the most part, is really what? A conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and then all the things that flow out of that conversation. And so again, when you think about the Gospel of John, I love the detail he gives. Now, this is not saying that it's better than the other Gospels. I also want to note that God uses each Gospel writer in their own way, with their own personality, their own distinct kind of characteristics of how they write, and yet the Holy Spirit superintended the Word of God through them. So John and Matthew and Paul and Peter, they don't become robots. But God works through their uniqueness into a, in such a way that the words they write are the very words of God inspired by the Spirit of God. And that's encouraging to us because we're all different. And God is going to speak through you in a different way. Now, I'm not saying we're going to write a gospel. So for the recording and for the internet or for whoever might put this out there, not saying we'll write a gospel, okay? Not preaching that. That's how I would lose my job if I ever said something like that. And I should. But what I'm saying is God will speak through you in so many different ways to where it's unique to you, but yet still his message, his gospel. And I love that he can do that. He keeps our personality intact, our uniqueness intact, and yet speaks through us the gospel so that others would come to Christ. People that will hear Christ differently from you than someone else. Because you have a relationship with them. You have a connection with them. So again, it's just interesting to see how that plays out. Now, that being all said, let's dive into our text. So the first thing we have to note here is that Jesus approaches the man born blind. That's how the text begins, right? It says that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, I hope you circled he as in he saw a man. Who's that? That's Jesus. So you have to note this entire conversation, this entire miracle happens not because the blind man called out for healing, but because Jesus paid attention and made notice of the blind man. This man, who's unnamed, we don't know his name. The text does not tell us. Some in church history have tried to give this person a name. The text doesn't give us a name. But this man was sitting there doing the only thing he could do in that culture, which is beg. And it's Jesus that initiated the interaction. And again, what a great picture of the gospel. I know we think, and we talked about this with Philip and Nathaniel and who chose who, right? Did Philip choose Jesus or did Jesus choose Philip? And the answer is yes and yes. Jesus chose Philip and Philip, his perception is he chose Jesus. And so here we're, we're understanding that in the gospel, if Jesus did not decide to initiate in our lives through the gospel, we could not be saved, right? We're on the same page there, right? We only love God because of why? Because he first loved us, right? The only way you came to saving faith in Christ was not because you decided it was a good idea. That's not how the salvation plan works. You, under the preaching, teaching, some kind of explanation of the gospel that was delivered to you, the Spirit of God began to speak through that gospel into your heart. And the Bible says that God gives every man a measure of faith. Every man has a measure of faith, enough to believe. And God, through the Holy Spirit, Peter says, or the book of Acts says it this way, when Peter preached, they were pricked in their hearts. I believe that's the Holy Spirit pricking the heart of the unbeliever. 
making us aware of the sin that we've committed, the penalty that we deserve, and the grace that's being extended to us. And now we have a choice to make. Will we call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Or will we reject and go away sad like the rich young ruler because we loved our possessions more than we wanted to sacrifice to Jesus? And so in that moment, Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit initiated in your life. You do not come to faith of your accord. I didn't receive Christ at 16 because I thought it was a great idea. I came to faith in Christ because the gospel was preached. The spirit worked and brought an awareness to me that I had not known because my eyes were blinded. And in that moment of grace, God, through his spirit, drew me to redemption. That's what Acts says, that they were drawn to redemption and made a choice to receive Christ. And so again, I know we read that verse. Most of us maybe read it really fast. Maybe you didn't even catch that really, but don't miss those kind of what I kind of look at as gospel moments, gospel reminders. Jesus initiated in this man's life. Now, a lot of times people call out for healing, right? You know, or Zacchaeus, he went up in a tree so he could see Jesus better. And Jesus stopped and looked up at the tree and called him down and said, we're going to your house for lunch. That's still one of the craziest things to me. Like, could you imagine how terrified the ladies probably would be more connected to this than the men. But most women, if Jesus just said, hey, it's 1150, let's all go over to your house for lunch. You're instantly thinking about what? what what's my house look like? The dishes in the sink? Do I have any clean dishes? I can serve Jesus, right? Like you're instantly thinking like, what, what am I going to make for lunch? Some of us end up more like Martha than Mary. Right? Do I have food in the house? Yeah. Does Jesus like mac and cheese and hot dogs? Is that okay to serve Jesus? I don't know. I don't have fish and bread in the house right now. Right? But as you think about that, like, like those conversations happen where it seems like the one needing the healing calls out. The story of the man that was lowered through the roof. His friends, we would think, oh, they initiated that moment. But none of that could have happened if Jesus never came. See, they could only bring their friend who was crippled on the bed to Jesus because Jesus came and went into that house. See, we think sometimes, well, we're the one. No, if he never came, we could never come to him. He initiated everything. And so here, this man, again, is doing the one thing that he can do. The only job that he can get in that culture, which is what? He's begging because he has this deformity. He was born this way. People that were born with deformities in this culture at this time were seen as not as valuable in the society. And many times they were forced to beg to survive. Now, this might remind you of another beggar, quite famous beggar named Lazarus, right? Luke chapter 16 says that he was by the gate and he laid there day and night. What was he doing? Begging because his body was full of sores. He had some kind of an ailment or an issue or a disease that he needed to beg to survive. This man, also we must note, his age. Now, do we know exactly how old he is? But what can we determine from the text? He's at least what? An adult male, right? He's at least beyond the age of considered being a child. And so here this man has also lived with this deformity his whole life. And again, I don't know if you really paid attention to that. Blind from his birth. Don't just skip over that. 
and I think of it this way, if you had this deformity, if you had a loved one that battled with something like this, that jumps out to you a whole lot more than if you've lived your whole life in fairly good health. It just means something different because you think about a family member or a friend that's battled some kind of a, a deformity. We don't know how old he is exactly, but he's obviously, I would imagine, struggled his entire life in this state, in this culture, begging to survive, begging to get by. And yet what really encourages me is as he's sitting there begging, Jesus in all of his commotion, I think it's safe to say that Jesus was busy. I think he had a lot of things to do. And it seems as though he was very committed to doing the things the father wanted, whether anybody else was going to follow or not. He didn't care. He was going to keep doing what he had to do. But Jesus noticed the man. And we have to really kind of camp on that for a moment because I hope that encourages you. So I just want to ask it and you guys can feel free to respond. That moment blows me away because that means that Jesus notices us. So I just want to ask you, when you think about that, we look at this man, blind, begging, looked down on by society, cast away, not as valuable, not as important. Jesus pauses, we'll talk about it in a minute, long enough the disciples catch on. Because the disciples aren't really paying attention to this guy. They only ask the question they ask because they notice Jesus is paying attention to the man. And so here Jesus pauses and give attention, gives attention to this man. He does that for you and I. How does that make you feel? Like what comes to your mind when you think about the fact that Jesus notices you? Not just noticed past tense, which we're thankful he did in salvation, but he notices you right now. What does that bring to your mind? How does that make you feel? Like what do you think of when you think that, Terry? Amen. Yeah, he always sees the need and acts on it. And that's true in our lives, right? Do we feel that way all the time though? Do we always think he's acting on the need? We always think, why can't you act on the need that I need you to act on right now? And he's thinking, I am going to do it, just not the way you want. And it's going to be so much better. Just calm down. What else comes to mind when you think about the fact that Jesus pays attention? He gives notice to us. What comes to your mind? What do you, what do you feel in that, thinking about that? Grateful, yeah. Yeah, undeserving. I love that. Extremely grateful and <laughs> extremely undeserving, right? What else? Julie? I just skip it ahead. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. We don't know how he's going to do it. What he's going to do. Um, but he is, I love that. He's seeing his purpose displayed through us. Absolutely. And it's going to be for his glory, right? And we'll talk, dive into that in just a moment for sure. Great. Any other thoughts on that? What comes to your mind? What, how does that make you feel to know that Jesus pays attention to you? Yeah, John. Hmm. 
Yeah. And that's, okay, that's a great point right there. If he knows me that well, and he cares for me that much to pay that much attention to me in those moments, and the finite moments of my creation, then when I bring something to him in prayer, I don't have to fear he doesn't understand or he's not going to get it. He knows exactly what I'm asking for, even if I can't verbalize it. You ever been in those moments of prayer where you're just, and I know the Bible says the spirit prays for us, but there's times we just feel like we don't know what to say. And we wonder, God, are you really getting this? Like, I don't know how to say it any other way. And it's okay. He knows. Now, it doesn't mean we don't verbalize it, but when we can't, he knows our heart, right? He knows the intents of our heart. He knows our motivations. Again, that can be really, really encouraging that he knows us so well, or it can actually be kind of challenging and convicting that he knows us so well. When our minds and our eyes are fixed on him, we love that he knows us that well and pays attention to us and gives us that detailed attention. But when we know we're not thinking, doing, acting, saying what we should, and then we realize he's paying close attention to us, that we can't skirt away from his eye, that brings conviction. But that's a good conviction because that means he cares about you so much. He's watching every moment and he cares for you. So to me, in my own life, I I just, I'm blown away. I I agree with everything that you guys were saying. It just blows me away that whether we're going through a struggle or a normal, mundane, ordinary day, nothing spectacular happens. It's just a Tuesday. Okay. It's just another day of going to work and doing our thing and seemingly Nothing, no storms, no big praise, just a day, okay? Do you know he pays just as much attention to you in those moments that we perceive as mundane as he does when you're going through the storm or the trial or the struggle? Because he still has his eye on you and he wants the best for you. He's leading you and guiding you and he desires that we keep our eyes on him. And so if he's paying that much attention to us, it should motivate us to keep our eyes fixed on him. So again, just an encouraging moment here that Jesus would take time to give attention to this man that nobody else seemingly is paying attention to. Verses 2 through 5. Let's look at that quickly. Here we see that Jesus shares the purpose of this moment. Now, it was already alluded to. The disciples seem to notice Jesus looking at the man. And they pose a question. Why was this man born blind? Because of his own sin, Or the sin of his parents. Now, this actually should strike you as sort of harsh. Because they're saying this right near who? The man born blind. By the way, this whole conversation is going to happen. And he's just sitting there. The text does not tell us how he responds. It's only giving us that information after the miracle. But you're the blind man. And you're sitting there and you're hearing all this. And you hear that question posed. And you've probably heard that question your whole life. You've been told your whole life, you know, it's probably your own sin or it's probably your parents' sin. And that's why you're in this state. And you're stuck living in that constant cycle of just being told that over and over and over again. At this point, he's probably so tired of the question. I almost imagine, I don't know this, but I imagine as soon as he heard the question, he was like, great, here we go again. Now this guy's going to rip on me for the next 20 minutes and go into that. Sandra. That's a great point too. He's believed it to this point because he's heard it so much. This is, by the way, his whole identity is wrapped up in this most likely, right? I'm just a sinner. I'm never going to have any alleviation of this. Now, this again seems weird to our ears. Like why would they assume that just because this man was blind, that therefore he was, or his parents were a sinner. We have to step back and look at the Jewish understanding 
of why things happen to individuals in this day, and ever since, really, the Old Testament. And you can jot this down, Deuteronomy 28. Specifically, you can look at Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 29. Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 29. But the whole chapter is really going to give us a good foundation for why they think this way. Uh, in Jesus' day, blindness was seen as a punishment for sin. This was taken from the Old Testament passages such as Deuteronomy 28, where the Lord warns the, Jews, the Jewish people that he will bring curses upon them if they are disobedient. So Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 29 says this. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. Now that sounds again, man, how vindictive is God that he's going to put this on these people? Read all of Deuteronomy 28. And what I try to look at it as is Deuteronomy 28 is a hinge passage, a hinge chapter to understand all of the Old Testament. Once you read Deuteronomy 28 and you put the rest of the Old Testament through that lens, everything makes sense. Here's what I mean. The people were given the land, they were brought in, they were given a covenant, and they were told, if you keep this covenant and do what we ask you, what God is asking you to do, blessing, provision, it'll be great. If you break this covenant, there'll be curses. There'll be persecution. There'll be bondage. And the entire Old Testament is a playing out of whether or not they adhered to Deuteronomy 28. What's amazing about this is before judges, before all the prophets and the captivities and the Babylonians and the Assyrians, in Deuteronomy 28, God said, I love you this much. Let me tell you and warn you what's going to happen. And what do the Israelites do? The same thing we do. Yeah, okay, sure. And we go live our life. And then when we get the consequences that we told were going to be the consequences of the choices we made, we go, God, why are you doing this? Why would you ever do this? I just don't understand. And so here in Jesus' day, when a Jewish person sees someone born blind, they instantly go to Deuteronomy 28. Oh, well, it's they broke the covenant or their parents broke the covenant. And they connect it all together. Now, in this moment, Jesus answers the question. And naturally, if we're being honest, we don't like the answer if we're the one that the question's being asked about. We're okay with the answer if it's someone else. We don't like the answer if it's us. Another translation of those verses say this. Jesus said, it was not because of his sin or his parents' sin. Jesus answered, he was born blind so that the power of God could be seen in him. All of us must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent me because there is little time left before the night falls and all the work comes to an end. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. And so what's the answer to the question? It's not his sin. It's not his parents' sin. But the glory of God would be revealed because I come to do the work of the Father, Jesus says. Now, there's a couple of things we have to understand here. First, when Jesus says neither this man or his parents has sinned, what is he not saying? Well, he's not saying they're perfect. We know that from Scripture. But if you just read this text, what does it sure sound like? Well, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Oh, they were perfect. No, what is Jesus doing? He's answering a specific question. We have to keep it in context. This is why context is so important. Well, these guys were perfect and they lived in a certain way. So you can too. No, that's not what Jesus was saying. He's answering a specific question that his blindness, this man's blindness, was not the result of sin. Of course, we know, and you can write this down. If you, Good reminder. All have sinned and come short of the glory 
of God, Romans 3.23. Second, the part of the question or the answer that we would struggle with, the answer is his blindness was given to the man as a blessing. So we want to note that on there. When it says that the glory of God or the works of God should manifest in him, that manifesting of the glory of God is a blessing to the blind man. It's a blessing to him. This is, again, the part we don't like because we do not want to think of perceived bad or tragic things to be good for us or God's glory. We don't want, we reject that at every chance we get. There's no way a bad thing could be good. But again, this is where we have to redefine good and bad. Good is not just how you define it. Good is how God defines it. God works all things together for good. What's the good in Romans 8? That we would be conformed to the image of Christ. So that good is the result of God's producing that in our lives, not the thing we're going through. The trial, the struggle, the tribulation, that's not defined as good. So we can't say, oh, only good things are going to lead. No, we can go through seemingly really rough situations and seasons and good be produced from them because the good is the result, not the process. And we have to get this because if we don't get this, we get frustrated in our Christian walk. We get angry at God. We pray the wrong things. We think the wrong things. We have to understand that God's glory is working even when we don't believe it could. So Jesus also shares an interesting point about his ministry on earth. And what does he say his ministry is? What is his job while he's on planet earth? Go ahead. Yeah, to do the works of the one who sent me, who sent him. God the Father. So again, what is Jesus claiming here? I was sent by the Father to do the works of the Father because the Father and I are one. So people say all the time, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He's claiming to be sent by God to do the works of God that only God can do. And so again, we have to pause and make note of that. Now, Jesus shares that his ministry on earth is to do the works of the one that sent him. Again, that being God the Father. Jesus would often say, and I love this when you read in the Gospels, to his skeptics or the religious leaders, if you don't believe me, believe what? My works. That's fine. You don't have to believe what I'm saying. Judge my works. And in fact, we even have a reference to this earlier, but Nicodemus. And if you need to turn there, you can, John 3. But uh, what was it? What was it that drove Nicodemus to go have a conversation with Jesus? If you remember John 3, Nicodemus comes, refers to him in a very honorable way. He doesn't believe he's the Messiah yet, but he makes a comment, right? We can just turn there because it's a good example of this practically being in the life of Christ. So John chapter 3. <clears throat> It says here in John chapter 3, verse 2, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Why? For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. What was Nicodemus' misunderstanding or problem? The religious leaders are saying, you're not the Messiah. There's no way. But I'm sitting back looking at what you're doing and going, but he's from God because he couldn't do these things if he wasn't from God. And do you see how Jesus used the miracles that he was producing and performing to draw people to a relationship? Now, again, that doesn't mean Jesus needs to do all the same miracles today. 
This is kind of a problem some people in the church get into. They start chasing an experience or a miracle. I said it before. Jesus only had to walk on water once to show us he could do it. I don't need him to do it again to prove anything to me. So here we see that Jesus was saying, if you don't believe my words, that's fine. But just judge my works. And what are the works showing you? That I'm from the Father. Also, these works, while he says that he is doing the works until the day ends, we know these works actually do continue through the church, right? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Who is the light of the world now? It's still Jesus, but through who? His church. You can jot down Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. It says, you are the light of the world. Speaking to his disciples. You are the light of the world. You are, are the city that is set on a hill. Right? You are the salt of the earth. Not that we, we have the light in us is the idea. And we shine that light out. Also, we need to note here that this healing of the blind man is actually evidence that Jesus is the Messiah as well. This shows that Jesus is reversing the curses of the Old Testament. I referenced Deuteronomy 28. You broke the covenant. This is the result. Jesus steps on the scene, offers grace and forgiveness, reversing the covenant or the curses of the old covenant. Not doing away with them, but fulfilling them. He is also fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that when the Messiah comes to save us, the blind will see. You can jot down Isaiah chapter 35. So healing the blind man is a sign that our Messiah has come. So here we have a lot going on in just the first five verses. And I love that he says, I am the light of the world. We'll unpack that just in a moment. Uh, I think we'll keep going. We only have a little bit left. So I know they go a little bit over seven, so we should be fine. I don't really want to break it up. You guys are okay, right? Awesome. Thanks. Good. Okay. You'll be fine. Yeah, I always want to ask and make sure. I don't want to ever presume anything. So if you guys, you know have an issue, just raise your hand and let me know, and I'll be sure to note that. Okay, so verses 6 through 7. So here we see the miracle. Now, this to me is an interesting moment, and you probably, hopefully, aren't too spiritual that you didn't chuckle at this at least a little bit, because I, I laugh every time I read it. But So Jesus brought sight to this man for the first time, right? The first time ever he saw for the very first time in his life. And it was a blessing to this man. Also, it was a healing the man never audibly asked Jesus to perform. Nowhere does the text tell us that the man called out as others had done asking for a healing. Does that mean there's something wrong with asking for a healing? No. But this man, for whatever reason, never even asked. Now, maybe it is something to do with the identity we talked about. He believes he's just such a low-down, wretched sinner. He doesn't deserve it. So why would I ever call out? Because, I mean, I'm just a sinner anyway. I, however, also wonder if this man hadn't been praying or maybe prayed for years to be healed. Now, again, the text doesn't tell us that. But I think about the character of God and the example we see in Scripture. I wonder, did this man spend hours, maybe as a child or as a youth, growing up in this situation? Maybe he prayed, Lord, would you just heal me? Like, I'm sorry for my sin. I repent of my sin. Would you heal me? Maybe he prayed that prayer so many times. And maybe he got to the point of thinking, you know what? God's going to just keep saying no. Because I've lived my life to this point and God's not answered it. So maybe I'll never be healed. He's just accepted his fate was to remain blind. Was he content to live his life merely in this state 
And that's why he never asked Jesus because he believed, you know what, I've prayed about it. Nothing's ever happened. It's just not God's will. And I'm okay with that. Maybe he was content with where he was at. Now, it's hard for us to understand, but I I try to read into it a little bit and think maybe that's where he was. So maybe Jesus healing this man and noticing this man was an answer to a prayer that this man maybe hasn't prayed in years. And and the reason, biblically, I kind of think that is you guys remember when uh, Nathaniel came and as Jesus was seeing him coming, he says, behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile means there's no deceit in him. And Nathaniel kind of pauses and says, how do you even know me? Like, we've never met. He says, oh, I knew you when you were by the tree. And then Nathaniel's response is, oh, you're the Messiah. And Jesus even says, that's all it took? Not really, I'm paraphrasing. But that's all you needed? Oh, you're going to see much greater things than that. And I've always loved that moment because history tells us, culture tells us, that most likely Nathaniel would have had a tree outside his home that created some shade. And a lot of times they would pray or study near the tree. And so some have assumed or made the assumption that Nathaniel most likely read scriptures about the Messiah, prayed to see the Messiah, wondered, maybe in my lifetime he'll come. And he's spending that time growing in the with God. And then he sees Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is, you're an honest Israelite, and I knew you when you were by the tree. And Nathaniel just believes. So again, I wonder, is it one of those moments where the man didn't have to audibly ask because Jesus knew his heart? Jesus knew what he'd been praying I also have to chuckle at how Jesus performed this miracle. And the funny thing is, remember, the man can't see anything. He can only hear. So how do you make mud with no water available? Says he spit on the ground. So you're the blind man. You hear this commotion, people talking, someone just hawk a loogie right on the ground. And then you feel something cold like mud on your face. You'd be thinking, what exactly is taking place here? Like, why is this happening? And then what does Jesus say after that? Go wash your face. If I was a blind man, my my face was fine. You put the mud on my face. Like, what is going on right now? And Jesus could have healed them any way he wanted to. Now, I believe, and we know this from the rest of scripture, that Jesus did this to provoke the Pharisees into responding. Because when did this happen? On the Sabbath day, that's in the rest of the text, if you read John 9. And so the act of making mud, oh, you violated the law of the Sabbath. And isn't it like Jesus, and I don't think Jesus was doing it to be antagonistic in a sense. I think he was wanting to provoke a response so that the Pharisees would be confronted with their foolishness. And they had to admit, I would rather you not make mud and this man go blind. Like, how foolish is that? How silly is that how deep are you into your traditions that you aren't even going to rejoice that this man could never see, now can see, but I had to make mud to do it, and you're focusing on the mud. And so again, I love that Jesus does this. Now, when you hear or see this happening, there's another example you can jot down. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 33. This is another example of Jesus performing a miracle involving spit. It's what the text tells us. So you can mark, put down Mark 7.33. Read that when you get home. And again, you'll see Jesus again doing a miracle involving saliva. Um, praise be to the Lord. Okay, so. Also, we note here, where does he send him to wash up? The pool of Siloam. Okay, so we have to pause here. 
what is this place? Why is this place significant? What could be going on here? I'll give you a little background quickly. Uh, the pool was fed by waters from the Gahan Spring, located in the Kidron Valley. The naturally flowing spring water would have qualified the pool for considered ritual bathing. So it's flowing water into that pool, so it would be considered okay for ritual bathing. However, it could also have been an important source of fresh water for the inhabitants of that part of the city. One scholar actually has even suggested that it was a Roman-style swimming pool. So this is a place of populace. There's a lot of people coming here, some for seemingly potentially recreation, some for ritual bathing. And so when Jesus says, go wash in the pool, it's this idea of ritual cleansing, okay? Ritual cleansing. The pool actually dates back to the time of King Hezekiah and his plan to protect the water supply during the Assyrian siege. Hezekiah's tunnel, some of you have heard of this, uh, Hezekiah's tunnel, about 1,750 feet long, uh, under the city of David, or the city of Jerusalem, created to bring water from the Gahan Spring, which lay outside the city wall, inside the city, to a pool on the opposite side of the ridge. This fed also various pools in the years that followed on that side of the city, even this pool in Jesus' day. So there's actually a long history here of God's provision and providing and caring for the needs of the people. Now, also, there's a little bit of a deeper significance as well. So if I can get a volunteer to go to John chapter 8 and verse 12. John chapter 8 and verse 12. So we mentioned that he brings sight to this man for the first time. He said something earlier about, I am the light of the world. Okay, he referenced that already. So John chapter 8 verse 12, who has that for us? Terry, awesome. I saw her hand first. Sorry. Okay, so Jesus says, I am doing the work of the Father. I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. He who follows me will not walk in what? Darkness. And instantly, within a short matter of time, what does Jesus do? He brings light to one who was walking in darkness. And he reveals the light of the world. This man lived in darkness his whole life. But then Jesus came bringing the sight and light to this man's life. And again, pause, gospel reflection, in the same way that he brings light and sight to our eyes and to our lives. Again, the world was in darkness. The world was in sin. No hope. And yet Jesus comes and reveals to them that he is the life and the light of men. You can jot down John chapter 1 verse 4, John chapter 1 verse 9. So John is already giving this picture, right? He's the light of the world. He's the life of the world. John 1 9, Jesus was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So you see how John is telling this beautiful story and he's using these illustrations of light and darkness, life and death. It seems that Jesus, by bringing sight to this individual, was illustrating how he provides light to all humanity. No one who follows Christ will walk in darkness. This man's blindness had been entirely for that moment. So think about that for a moment. He's lived his whole life blind so that Jesus, on planet Earth, could glorify the Father and fulfill all that was taking place and display that he is the light of the world. This man's lived his whole life blind so that God could be glorified. At that moment, Jesus was able to show his power over nature, 
and to demonstrate that he is a light who emerge, enlightens rather every person. So Jesus himself was working while it was day. And again, we think about this and we think, man, that's so powerful and, and what a moment. But would we think that if we were the one that lived our whole lives blind, just so God could be glorified? And again, if we think worldly Christianity, if we think feel-good Christianity, we don't want that to be true. But if we believe biblical Christianity, then we know that God can use anything for his good and for our good, for his glory and our blessing. So quickly, how do the people respond to the miracle? So verses 8 through 12, it says here, The neighbors therefore, and they which before had seen him, that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Again, all these conversations happening around him, but nobody wants to talk to him. Therefore said they unto him, how were thy eyes opened? What does, Jesus, what does this man say? He answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay. What did he omit? How he made the clay. No details needed. He made some clay. How did he do that? Don't worry about it. It's fine. That's, oh, yes, right. Yeah, I guess he didn't see it. But you can't, he heard it, and that's almost as good as seeing it, I'm sure. So a man that was called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. They said, unto, they, said they unto him, where is he? And he said, I know not. Now, there was a lot of doubt at first, right? Is this the same guy? Did a miracle really take place? Even from those that knew him and knew him well, some thought he wasn't the same man, just looked like him. Others said clearly he was the same man. We also note that the healed man's level of knowledge in Christ is limited. How does he refer to Jesus? A man called Jesus. So he doesn't call him master. He doesn't call him rabbi. Just his name. There's just a man named Jesus. Again, this man does not know where Jesus even went after restoring his sight. Jesus also did not stay around the man or waited for him to return. Again, this seems odd, but it will fall into place for God's plan in just a few moments. As we read the rest of the chapter, we see even more evidence that the man is not very clear on who Jesus is, as far as if he is the Messiah or even if he has sinned. The religious leader says that he's a sinner, and the man says, whether he sinned or not, I have no idea. I just know I couldn't see, and now I can see. So he's not even to the point of believing that Jesus is divine. So again, there's a limited amount of understanding. The religious leaders question the man to get him to deny that Jesus did this great work. They want to get him to say he didn't really do it. The man actually gets short with them after repeating himself and says boldly, why do you keep asking me? Do you too want to be his disciple? The religious leaders get enraged. And this is all in John chapter 9. I encourage you to read it either today or this week. The religious leaders get enraged, declaring that they are disciples of Moses. So there's a distinguish, distinguishing moment here. There's the disciples of Moses and you supposed disciples of Jesus. And the religious leaders see them in contradiction. Again, this is why they would challenge Jesus. You broke the law. You violated the law. You did this or that. Now I need to pause here. There's a very popular speaker. And, and I'll actually say his name because it's Stephen Furtick. I don't like Stephen Furtick's messages. They're very shallow, very surface. Um, there's gospel there, but you got to dig for it. It's a lot of self and a lot of prosperity gospel. I don't know how to describe it. He made a comment in a sermon. 
And I thought, oh, it's just a soundbite. I listened to the whole thing. Listen to most of the sermon, not a soundbite. He said, God broke the law for love. What is that saying, really? That Jesus sinned. God did not break the law. What did God violate? Man's traditions. Often he would say, uh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You've created these traditions and you think it's this and this. But Jesus can never break the law because he had to fulfill the law in every point so that he would be a worthy sacrifice. And I remember when I saw this clip, and it's been a little while now. I don't know when he preached it originally. When he preached that and gave this ridiculous illustration. I'm not questioning the man's salvation. I am challenging his teaching. And we can discern that as Christians. You can discern someone's teaching and still respect the person and believe they could be saved. But when he did that, he gave this ridiculous illustration. And when he made that comment in his raspy, hyped-up performance, people lost their mind, just applauding and cheering. The man just said Jesus sinned, and his church rejoiced in that. And so here, when we see this, when this man says, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, and the religious leaders are saying, no, he is a sinner because he breaks the law of Moses. They had elevated traditions to the law of Moses, and they think they're in contradiction. By the way, before Abraham, before Moses, Jesus was and is. And the reason Moses received the law was because Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit gave it to him. There's no contradiction between Moses and Jesus. Moses said, one is coming, and that is Jesus. So again, here, they get enraged. They get mad. So what do they do? They remove the man from the synagogue, the exact thing the man's parents were afraid of happening to them. And again, you'll read that and see that in the story. By the way, they actually bring up his sin. Who are you to challenge us? You're just a sinner. Why do they think he's a sinner? Because he was born blind. Following the expulsion from the synagogue, Jesus again finds the man and shares a powerful revelation with him. Now, again, we're short on time, but I had to read this because this is my favorite part of the whole passage. Second to this part is the spit making. But this is first spit making second. Verse 35 of John 9. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, the man that was born blind. So Jesus hears this. And when he had found him, he said unto him, when Jesus found the man that was kicked out. So what is Jesus again doing? He's initiating. He's seeking it out. It says, dost thou believe on the son of God? I love the way Jesus did these things. Could you just imagine the man sitting there down, beaten down? Just, I'm so confused. I thought I was a sinner, so I was content in my blindness. This man heals me. That must be a thing from God. I must be forgiven. And then these guys kicked me out and said I was a sinner. I don't understand. And Jesus sits down next to him. I don't know if they sat down, but I just imagine this. And he, I can just imagine Jesus looking over at him going, do you, do you believe in the Son of God? By the way, he says a man called Jesus. Had he ever seen Jesus before? Because when he came back, he came back seeing. He didn't see Jesus because Jesus was already gone. And the man went home. So Jesus sits down next to him and says this. The man says, he answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Hungry faith, ready faith, ready to believe. That tells me he has a knowledge of the things of God, a knowledge that Messiah would come. And Jesus said unto him, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. Like, if you're the man born blind, can you imagine what you're feeling in that very moment? Like, I don't know how you do anything, but just begin to weep. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I am come into this world 
but they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. So who are the blind ones in the story? Not the man born blind. He can see now. Who's blind? The religious leaders that kicked him out. And some of the Pharisees which were with him, so they're nearby, get out of here, but then we're going to stalk you and see if Jesus shows up. Which were with him, heard these words, and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. You know what Jesus was saying? You think you can see, and you're in your sin. If you admitted your blindness, your sin would be removed. In what way? You would realize your need for me and cry out. So Jesus' response is overwhelming. Jesus' compassion to come to this man again and make it clear that the religious leaders can remove him from the building, but Jesus desires a relationship with him. It is in this moment that the man fully understands who Jesus is and he worships him accordingly. The only response is worship. Notice, why does he worship Jesus? Why did he worship Jesus? Was it because of the miracle of being able to see? He's acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. And so why do we worship Jesus? Because he jumps through all the hoops and does what we ask and performs and heals and brings this. No, we worship him solely because he's Messiah. I think it's, now I, I didn't read, I'm quoting a pastor who referenced this writing. Um, I need to get this, these, this volume. But John Calvin, in his uh, work on the Institutes of Christian Living, um, I believe it was Tim Keller I was listening to who quoted this, and he was reading through there. And he said, you know, Calvin's point was that we should worship God just purely because he's God. Period. Done. The Bible should never have to give us reasons to worship him. All the Bible needs to declare is he is God, and we respond and worship as his creation. But we're flawed, and we're fallen, and so what do we need? Prodding and provoking demonstrations of that love, examples of why Jesus and God and the Spirit are worthy of worship. But here this man, all he needed to hear was, hey, you're looking at him, and I'm talking to you, and he worshiped. And so again, what a lesson for us that we worship not primarily because of the things the Lord does for us, although there are many. Amen? I mean, there's countless things the Lord does for you. We worship him because of who he declares himself to be, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I hope that's an encouragement to you this week to grow in worship, to seek a way to worship him in understanding I'm worshiping you because of who you are, not just because of what you do. By the way, he's already done more than enough to be worthy of our lifelong praise, eternal praise, and that's what we're going to do in heaven. Let's, oh, go ahead, Sandra. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. When things go the way we don't like, that it forces us to still worship because we're worshiping for a different reason. Not because our lives are perfect and everything's great. Absolutely. Very true. Any other comments on that before we pray? No? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being exactly who you are. And Lord, I know that the longer we're in church, the longer we're around the word of God, the longer we're saved, 
there's many, many times that we can fall into these kind of apathetic mindsets. But Lord, I pray that this very familiar text would draw us into a deeper level of worship. That we would realize that worship is not a mere activity we do. It's not a song we sing, an offering we give, an act of service to you. It's not even primarily sharing our faith. It's all of that and so much more. That worship is truly a lifestyle of living in constant praise and adoration and gratitude. Humbly understanding that you've done all that we needed to have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, when things go sideways, when we experience difficulties or tragedies or things that we deem negative and, and tragic moments, may we realize that while those are examples of living in a fallen world from the choices of others or the choices we make, that you are working in and through all those things, your glory, our blessing, and the conformity to Christ. Thank you for the example of your compassion in this passage. The religious, the ones that should have known your law, the ones that claim to know your law, the supposed disciples of Moses, showed no hospitality, showed no grace. And so, Father, thank you for reminding us that it's not about knowing as much as we can. It's about applying what we know to live differently. So help us to be examples of compassion, examples of truth and grace, speaking the truth in love. And keeping our eyes on you, Lord, thank you for your goodness and all that you do. And more than that, thank you for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.